You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. The entrenched incumbents or traditional incumbents remain a formidable obstacle. There is no doubt about that, and they still do. We know the best technology that's going to wind is wind and solar because they're the low-cost sources of life. For January 5th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This is part two of our nearly four-hour interview with Professor Thane Gustafson of Georgetown University, a widely recognized authority on Russian political economy. We are discussing his new book titled Klimat, Russia in the Age of Climate Change, which explores Russia's attitude toward climate change and how the country will fare in the energy transition. In part one, which ran as episode 162 of this show, we discussed Russia's oil sector, including the state of its oil fields and equipment, the politics of oil internally, the outlook for global oil demand and the questions swirling around peak oil demand, as well as the country's prospects for new oil production. In this second part of the interview, we'll talk about Russia's other energy resources, including natural gas, coal, nuclear technology, and renewables, as well as its hopes to pivot to hydrogen production for export to Europe, and how it might deal with the pending European carbon border adjustment mechanism. We'll also discuss Russia's perspective on climate change and its role in addressing it, and we'll wrap up this conversation with an assessment of Russia's fortunes as the energy transition and climate action proceed. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll review two new programs from the U.S. Department of Energy that will support the energy transition, with or without President Biden's Build Back Better Act. We'll note a proposal to decarbonize aluminum production in Australia, and we'll applaud several major moves toward decarbonization and emissions reduction in Los Angeles, New York City, Ithaca, New York, and Colorado. And now, the second half of our interview with Professor Thane Gustafson of Georgetown University, recorded December 7th, 2021. Let's move on and talk about natural gas, which is arguably an even more critical resource for Russia these days. We've talked about it a little bit so far, but just to really focus in on kind of the the extent of the reserves, the importance of that revenue, and the view about future production, where does Russia stand in the global gas market today? Natural gas is a younger industry in terms of its history, its Soviet pedigree, than the oil industry is. In some respects, the oil industry goes back to pre-revolutionary times in Baku and then migrated to the Volga Basin in the 1940s or so. Then in the 1960s, it migrated to West Siberia. The West Siberian story for its first 10 years or so was an oil story. Then, in the beginning of the 1980s, Leonid Brezhnev got worried about the viability of the oil industry. He had a couple of reports from the American CIA on his desk, which told him that the oil industry was in trouble. (laughs) And he launched a top-priority crash program to develop gas. Now, that was the point at which the Russians began knocking on the door of the West Europeans because the Russians soon realized that they had a treasure trove of gas in West Siberia. The farther north you go in West Siberia, the more gas prone it gets. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have the pipe. They didn't make the large diameter pipe on their own. And to the extent that 
They had the steel that was all being commandeered by the defense industry, and they didn't have the capital. So the rest is history, because that coincided with Willy Brandt, then still mayor of Berlin, his Ostpolitik, as he became then chancellor. And the Russians said, look, there's the basis for a great deal here between our gas and your capital and your pipe. And the Germans said, great, let's do it. And so that was the beginning of that. I tell that story, by the way, in my earlier book called The Bridge, and it recounts the origins of that. Okay. That's been, of course, a tremendous success story, arguably, for both sides. But that also tells you why the DNA of the Russian gas industry until right now, in fact, to this day, is centered on largely dry gas from West Siberia, shipped by pipeline to Europe. Now, at the margins, though, and there we come back to your picture, Chris, and others of the fast transition, a new player has suddenly appeared on the block, and that's LNG. And that is a remarkable story in the Russian context, because that's actually a private sector startup. Mm-hmm by an entrepreneur named Leonid Michelson, who in alliance with the French company Total, has begun developing the eastern coast of the Yamal Peninsula with the explicit aim of developing LNG. And he is doing that. The first shipments have gone off, largely to Europe so far, which has got Gazprom a little bit worried, but some of them crossing the ice to Asia, and that's the vision of Novatech and Leonid Michelson, and increasingly of Putin. So LNG is the future as far as gas is concerned, or rather to put it more completely, gas is the future as far as Putin is concerned, LNG is the future of gas, and East Asia is the future of Russian LNG. So that's a big new development on the radar screen. Hmm. So how much of the gas produced in Russia is used domestically versus destined for export? Well, that's part of our slow transition story because 70% of the natural gas produced by Russia goes into the domestic economy. Russia is effectively a gas-fired economy, particularly for urban heat and for electricity. That is, of course, the biggest single reason why, to date at any rate, renewables have hardly gotten a toehold in Russia, and that's likely to continue into the future. So this question of the outlook for the Russian energy transition is then very much linked to the extent to which gas is really embedded in the day-to-day activities of the Russian economy, isn't it? Well, that's right. And a quick look at the map, the Western two-thirds, three-quarters of Russia is gas country. The eastern part is coal country and hydropower. Maybe shall we say the eastern third of Russia. The hydropower was developed in Soviet times. The coal story is emerging as a new story, and I've got a chapter on that in Klimat. The coal industry, after also largely falling apart after the Soviet collapse, has been rebuilt, and it's been rebuilt around exports, which was never the case before. So there's a coal story, which we can turn to later. The eastern gas story is 
something that was not there before. There are two big fields in East Siberia, however, that are being developed now and which are providing the basis for the first new export gas pipeline going to China. This is the so-called Power of Siberia project, which just started operation in the last year and a half, two years. Gazprom was initially very reluctant to get involved in the East. Their DNA, as I've mentioned, is pipeline gas exports to Europe. But finally, with a good deal of pushing by Putin, Gazprom then took a deep breath, took the plunge, and the gas export pipeline is up and running. Not very profitably, it needs to be said, as Gazprom will will admit, because the Chinese are very tough negotiators, and that deal took 10 years to put away. Wow. But nevertheless, there it is. It's up and running. The big question will be, will there be a power of Siberia too? And that's still very much up in the air. If the Chinese are true to form, <laughs> it could take another 10 years before power of Siberia becomes reality. In the meantime, however, the LNG story is growing rapidly. But where does the Russian LNG go? Well, it'll go to the existing regasification facilities, mainly on the coast in the southeast of China. So you have two Russian gas stories taking shape here. One is the pipeline gas to northeastern China, and then the Russian LNG story to the southeastern coast of China. Over time, the pipeline gas will march south down the coast, the Russian LNG will march north, up the coast. They'll meet somewhere in the middle, maybe around Shanghai. And so there you'll have the interesting story of Russian LNG competing against Russian pipeline gas. But that's a story that's still maybe another 10 years in the future. Right. And then, of course, there's the story about the pipeline gas exports to Europe, which is ever more in the news these days. But before we talk about that, I want to go back here for a moment to the domestic gas consumption picture, because I think that's really a key point here in terms of how Russia is going to deal with the energy transition. As you said, 70% of gas production is used domestically in Russia. Only 30% is exported. And that ties back to policies developed in Soviet times. So tell us a little bit about how the consumption of gas is incentivized internally and how residential, industrial, and so on processes use it. Well, there are really two stories here, chapter one, chapter two. The first chapter is the Soviet story and the initial development of West Siberia. That was done under Soviet rules and Soviet norms, paying no attention to the cost of capital and so on. And the result of that is you have a very large and still young gas industry that is fully developed at the time the Soviet Union falls apart. It is putting out rent like nobody's business. Hmm. And the big question in gas politics is who's going to get the rent? <laughs> the Ukrainians, of course, reasonably said, look, we've got the pipelines. You want to get your gas through to Europe? Pay us part of the rent. But that's a whole separate story. The Russian political leadership understood that gas was the salvation of Russia at a very difficult time. And so a lot of that Soviet era rent went to keep the lights on and the apartment blocks heated in Russia in the 90s and going forward and down to the present day. 
in those days, it was straightforward. If you can pay for the gas, fine. If you can't, <laughs> that's okay too. We'll still ship you the gas. Hmm. And lots of people didn't pay for gas in those days. Wow. Gazprom survived on its export earnings hmm. rather than its domestic. So the story is quite dramatic. But sooner or later, long about the second half of the 2000s, the Soviet era rent starts to run down. That's the moment at which, for example, Gazprom comes back, say, to the Ukrainians and said, by the way, that, that cheap Soviet gas you've been getting, well, we're raising the price on it now. So again, that's a Ukrainian story. But they also started raising the price of gas to the domestic economy. It is still the case, however, that gas is underpriced relative to its export netback. And gas continues to support the Russian economy in the Western two-thirds of the country. Now, switch to chapter two. Putin decides the first generation West Siberian province is starting to run down. Fine, we'll build a second generation. And that is what the Russians have achieved under Putin. It's an extraordinary story, not just because they've developed the Yamal Peninsula, but they've developed five new export pipelines to go with, all of them to Europe, bypassing Ukraine, incidentally. So who's going to get the rent the second time around? Well, it won't be Ukraine. The five pipelines, by the way, have names Blue Stream, Yamal, Europe, Nord Stream 1, which no one ever talks about, but which has been up and running for several years, Turk Stream through Turkey, all Russian gas, and then finally the famous Nord Stream 2. What you will never hear in Washington is that Nord Stream is number five. It's the last. It's the keystone and the arch, and the arch is finished. It's completed now. Hmm. But coming back to the question of the future of the Russian gas industry, what we have now under Putin is a whole new gas province that's been built from scratch in the Yamal Peninsula and which now includes LNG. So Russia has gas from now until doomsday. When the last Trump sounds and the lights go out, it'll be a Russian hand and probably Gazprom that will turn out the lights. <laughs> but that raises a really important vulnerability as well for Russia's energy transition story, because now you have an economy that is over-consuming gas that is still underpriced. So you have an economy that's extremely dependent on this cheap gas, and that creates an impediment to pursuing energy transition. That's right. And that comes back to a theme that, that we've talked about in the interview, which is really a central story in the Klimat book, which is that alone of the major industrial powers and the major emitters of the world, in Russia, the inertia story is in fact very largely the dominant story and is likely to remain that way for the foreseeable future. Because of this extraordinary, call it comparative advantage, call it blessing or curse, of this extraordinary endowment in oil and gas, which is, is still very much there, particularly on the gas side. Now, the picture is substantially different once you move to the eastern third of the country, because there the gas is not nearly so cheap. That is to say, the conventional pipeline gas is not nearly so cheap. At this moment, there are only two major gas fields, 
the so-called Kavrikta and the so-called Chayanda. The pipe is extremely expensive to build. And then, of course, you're shipping into the Chinese market. And the Chinese, as Gazprom will admit, are some of the world's toughest negotiators. So built into or implicit in this outlook for Russia's gas exports is this notion, I think, that for the next 30 years, at least, many experts have said that they're still expecting record growth for global natural gas demand. Currently, gas represents about a quarter of global energy demand. Some experts think that's going to overtake coal demand later this decade and then later overtake oil. That is a pretty big bet that Russia is making here. I think there's a fair amount of uncertainty about that bet. But just kind of returning to, I guess, what I'll call the conventional view, there's this notion that gas is going to continue to compete with coal, especially in Asia, and that eventually it'll win that competition. That's right. The view that Gazprom favors, and of course, for good reason, you can understand why, is that gas will remain a dominant fuel in Europe for the foreseeable future. What the Russians have going for them, thanks to this new second generation of gas, which is all set up, ready to go, complete with pipelines, is that it is demonstrably the lowest cost gas supplier into the European market. One reason for that, by the way, is apparent if you take a globe and you trace the Great Circle shortest route from the Yamal Peninsula to Europe, the Nord Stream 2 under the Baltic Sea is very much the Great Circle shortest route, uh, not Ukraine. And then on top of that, you've got the latest generation of large diameter pipelines. So there's no question, but that from an economic standpoint, that is the route to go. It is ready to go. And it is highly competitive in the European market, much more so, by the way, than LNG coming into Europe and, among others, from the United States. So there's a limit to which freedom gas can win its way into Europe on strictly economic grounds. The Russians can not only underprice you in the spot market, but if you look at the structure of their long-term contracts, inside those long-term contracts, fully three-quarters of the gas that flows is sold at spot prices. Hmm. So to that extent, the Russians have benefited from the revolution that's taken place in the European gas and power sector. Right. With the move away from what used to be called the Groningen model, based on long-term competing energy sources, such as oil in particular, that's all gone. Just as gas is traded on spot markets, computerized hubs in Europe, why Russian gas is traded at spot prices. Now, is that an advantage for Russia or is it ultimately a weak spot? At this moment, of course, with the gas and power spike, Russia is benefiting very much from the fact that its gas is sold at spot, most of it. Yeah. So what could the future look like? You said that the Russians are making a tremendous bet. Why? Yes, indeed, because of other factors. One is the future of renewables. We have seen, of course, the German success in building Energiewende 1.0, you might call it that, 
<laughs> a tremendous success in investing in solar and wind. We have European gas policy. And of course, we have, at least in France notably, the dominance of nuclear, which is likely to continue. We have the European energy transition strategy. We have, of course, coal, for better or for worse, which has had a new lease on life just this year, mm -hmm. and which, of course, remains the fuel of choice in much of Eastern Europe. So Russian gas is not necessarily going to have things all its own way. I would suggest that the crucial market to watch is Germany. Will Germany manage to make a success of its Energiewende 2.0? Yeah, I would agree with you about that. And I think the way that you've framed the outlook is fair and certainly in keeping with the view of most analysts about the outlook for gas demand globally. But since you've been listening to the show, you know that I think the most recent data for wind and solar projects in Asia, for example, cast some doubt on the growth picture for coal as well as gas. There very well may be a much faster growth than I think a lot of more conventionally minded analysts expect for wind and solar in Asia, which would cut into that outlook for gas demand. Certainly that's true in Europe. Certainly that's true in Germany. And so generally just my personal outlook is that there's going to be a lot more market share going to renewables than to new gas in the next couple of decades. And in fact, some analysts are already speculating that the world may have reached peak gas demand already or will in the next couple of years, which is, I think, probably an outlier view at this point, but I don't think it's a crazy one. So as we return to this question of the outlook for Russia's gas exports, I think we have to put a little bit of an asterisk about its expectation for Asian appetite for gas, certainly to the extent that Asia can use Russian gas to displace its own use of coal. That would be a good thing from a climate standpoint. It's probably also going to be cheaper for Asian consumers, especially in the manufacturing and industrial type sectors, to, to use Russian gas than to keep relying on coal. But as we look at this LNG question, transportation costs are much more of a factor there for Russia's LNG exports, aren't they? Oh my, yes. To comment on your previous point, as I said earlier, I'm basically a flow guy. Yeah. So I'm very sympathetic to the renewables story. And I'm certainly no Asia expert, but it does seem to me from what I have looked at that there are two Asias, roughly speaking. There's China, and then there's the rest, Southeast and India. The China story, my goodness, the story of renewables in China is absolutely breathtaking. It really is. And the transfer of technology into solar, the entrepreneurial capacity of the Chinese, mm -hmm. and wind coming right behind, it is just amazing. Mm -hmm. And the partnership that the Chinese managed to develop in solar and wind with the Germans in particular, all of that is just an amazing story. And the Chinese will continue down that path, I'm convinced. But the rest of Asia now, India, the coal industry is so deeply entrenched and gas is still at its tender beginnings. Southeast Asia, the same. And the story there is not just economics, because I think one of the earlier 
energy transition shows focused on India and pointed out that coal in India is a money loser. Coal-fired power in India is a money loser. Right. But the entrenched position of the coal lobby in India is so powerful that it seems one has to be very optimistic indeed to see a gas future for India anytime soon. Or even, well, renewables, of course, is another story. Ditto the political power of the coal industry in Indonesia, not to mention Australia. So two Asias, what would you think of that, Chris? I like that framing, particularly because the Chinese part of that two Asia story does really favor the idea of importing a lot of pipeline gas from Russia. But LNG uh, serving the rest of that other two Asias is much more complex because of those transportation costs. It's hard to imagine Given the trajectories that I'm seeing, for example, for the costs of utility-scale wind and solar projects in places like India and Vietnam and Malaysia and other parts of Southeast Asia, it's really hard to imagine how making the kind of investment that would be needed to make to really substantially increase LNG gas imports into those countries I just think that that's going to be a very difficult case to make from an investment perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a Russia-India story. In fact, this morning's Financial Times, the front page picture was of Putin and Narendra Modi. Putin is in Delhi at this very moment. Mm. Uh, you can bet that LNG is part of the conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and India is one of the investors in Novatech for LNG development. Mm -hmm. So the Russians have high hopes. They're talking about an LNG market going forward of up to 100 million tons a year wow. of LNG into Asia. Wow. Now, oh, oh, okay, that's at least what their ambition is. Can't fault them for lack of ambition. <laughs> Coming back to the Russian pipeline story in China for a moment, the big issue is where the gas will come from and how will it run. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. 
We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item one, hopes for the passage of President Biden's $1.7 trillion Build Back Better Act, which passed the House in late November, collapsed on December 19th as Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia told Fox News that he would not support the bill after personally promising President Biden that he would, leaving the bill one vote short of passage in the Senate. The bill represented the most significant effort to spur energy transition and combat climate change in American history. Manchin has made millions of dollars from coal-related enterprises and still holds a stake worth millions of dollars in a coal brokerage business he founded. The White House subsequently said that conversations with the senator would continue, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the chamber would vote on the bill in early 22. But as of this writing, just before Christmas 2021, its fate is unknown. In the meantime, the Biden administration is pursuing other avenues. Two days after Manchin's announcement, the U.S. Department of Energy announced two new programs that will support the energy transition. The first was the establishment of the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, a new DOE office funded by more than $20 billion to support demonstration projects for clean energy technologies such as clean hydrogen, carbon capture, grid-scale energy storage, small modular reactors, and more, with the objective of helping these new technologies get to scale. The second was the selection of 21 state public utility commissions that will receive technical assistance from the DOE's national laboratories through its Grid Modernization Initiative to help their regulators make decisions and develop innovative solutions to improve grid reliability and resiliency, enable the adoption of new technologies, promote energy and environmental justice, and develop strategies to decarbonize their electric grids. The projects include one to two years of technical assistance focusing on critical, emerging, and existing topics including equity and justice, distributed energy adoption and integration, grid planning, and energy resilience. Item 2. Australian utility Alinta Energy has proposed a 1 gigawatt, 4 billion Australian dollar offshore wind farm about 10 kilometers off the coast of Victoria that would allow the Portland Aluminum... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.